0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I ask you to turn in the Gospel of Matthew uh, chapter 3, going backwards just briefly and into chapter 4. Matthew chapter 3, when you found your place, let's stand together so we can hear read the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 17, this is the word of the Lord. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. ask now your blessing as we come to your word, this passage, Lord, that's so familiar, passage about which so much has been written and so much in it that we need to learn and understand for our lives, to be the people you've called us to be. So toward that end, Lord, bless us with the power of your spirit. Open our eyes to see your truth and our minds to be able to comprehend it, Lord, and with our hearts to embrace it and live it out in our lives. For your glory, we pray that you'll do these things for us now in Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. Last week when we were together, we talked about doing extraordinary things for God. Extraordinary because you and I cannot do them on our own, but if we pray, if we submit our lives to the truth of Scripture, to the leading of the Spirit, if we depend on the power of the Spirit, then if it pleases the Lord and if it's according to His plan for our lives, He may use us, you and me, to do extraordinary things that make a difference in the lives uh, of people whose lives we touch. And what a beautiful thing it is for us. To go through this world as we make our way to the next one knowing that the things that we are doing in this world make a difference and have eternal value. This morning, we'll also see that in order to put ourselves in a good position of doing these extraordinary things, you and I must be secure in and work out of our identity in Christ. We have to be secure in our identity. We have to work out of our identity. We must know who we are in Jesus, not who we want to be ourselves, not who the world tells us we should be, but who the Lord has made us to be. Now here is full disclosure. When you know your identity and when you own your identity when you are living out of that identity when you are acting out of that identity when you are thinking out of that identity you will be tempted tempted to deny that identity or at least be insecure about it tempted to act in ways that are contrary to To who you are in Christ. And if you and I give in to those temptations. Then you and I will be rendered ineffective. In doing those extraordinary things for God. And that would be very sad. So you and I must expect and be ready for temptation to come. We can expect nothing less for ourselves than we see happening in the life of Jesus. As you heard this morning, at his baptism, the voice of God declared Jesus' identity, This is my beloved Son. We don't know if Satan was at Jesus' baptism or not. He may have been in the crowd of onlookers. We do know that angels long to look into the things of Jesus' And Satan, being a fallen angel himself, might have the same interest, even a heightened level. He might have been there, hearing the voice of God clearly announce the identity of Jesus. Here's what Satan does know. A contest is coming. God, his creator, told him so in the garden. You know the story After God created man and woman in his image, they, man and woman, rested in the work the Lord had done. Please imagine opening your eyes for the first time, coming to consciousness for the first time. And you look around you and you are in the beauty and the splendor of the paradise that God created for you and placed you in the Garden of Eden. I don't know what the rest was like other than to say that that as the final crowning part of God's creation, Adam and Eve were able to rest and enjoy the beauty and the glory of the paradise that God had given them. And the overflow of living in that reality was that they would worship the God who had created them and given them consciousness of all this and enjoy the one who had given it to them forever and ever. Additionally, they were to rule over all that God had created. And so we see that their identity, Adam and Eve's identity, is established. They are God's image bearers. They are ones who rest in Him. They are ones who rule over all that God has created. And so once their identity is established, once it's pronounced that that identity is good, then Satan enters to tempt Adam and Eve to think, and to believe outside of the identity that God has given to them. And so the serpent tempts them to believe that this paradise that God has given them is not enough. He tempts them to believe that there is more that God just does not want them to have. More that God does not want them to know. He wants them to believe that God is limiting them and repressing them and that God is the man who's trying to keep them down. And so after Satan messed with their thinking and their believing about their identity, he goes after their acting, right? Go ahead and eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, and you know what happens. Adam and Eve give in to Satan's temptation and they eat the fruit. And then God comes calling. And this is what He says to the serpent at that time. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel that's what we call the proto-evangelium the first promise of the gospel and did you get it it's the promise of a future contest or battle satan the serpent is going to have a small victory he's going to bruise the head of the one who is coming but the coming one is going to have the final victory by bruising or crushing the head of Satan, the one who tempted and brought sin into the world. But one of Satan's many problems is that he does not possess the divine attributes of God. He's not omnipresent. He isn't everywhere as God is. He certainly has a wider sphere of influence than you or I have, but he cannot be everywhere at once, neither can his minions be. Satan is not omnipotent. He's stronger than you and I, but he's not all-powerful, and he is certainly not more powerful than God. Neither is Satan omniscient. He does not know all things. He knows more than we do, but he does not know all that God knows. And because he does not know All that God knows, he does not know when the contest, when the crushing is going to come. And so this makes him afraid because God is all of these things. And the reality of what he, Satan, is not, it makes him a fighter. He does not know which one will be the one that's going to crush his head. And so the voice of God is spoken from heaven. Saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But, but what does God mean by Son of God? The nation of Israel was referred to as God's Son. Exodus 4.22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn Son. And I say to you, let my Son go, that He may serve me. And yet Israel... Failed over and over in their sonship from the beginning. While they were in the wilderness, freshly released from the slavery of Egypt by the power of God, they doubted God. They did not trust God to provide for them and sustain them. And so in that they fell. They were not true sons. King David is called God's son. And he certainly failed on Multiple occasions. For instance, taking a census of his counting men because he trusted more in their power than the power of of God. And it brought disaster upon his people. So what does it mean to be a son of God? Perhaps Satan believed that when God referred to Jesus as the son, there was hope that son was lesser son. Another flawed son. Another son Who would fail? Perhaps his own fall gave him hope that Jesus, too, would fail and fall. Some see Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 as poetic allusions to the fall of Satan. And if that be true, Satan, too, is called a son. Listen, this is Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star... Son of dawn, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities? Who did not let his prisoners go home? Ezekiel 28. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become dreadful. You have come to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever if these truly are descriptions of satan before the fall then the son of dawn the one of beauty and wisdom fell if he fell then perhaps so will this one who has been declared to be the son of god if we could see a celestial scoreboard just i don't know what a celestial scoreboard would look like but If we could see one, Satan would be the apparent victor. He watched Adam and Eve fail and fall. There's a point. Israel failed, another point. David failed. Thus far, no son has fully embraced and lived out of their identity. Each one has yielded to the temptation of Satan. Each one has failed in being a true son. If Satan can keep it that way, keep scoring points, then perhaps he will stave off the day when he is mocked. <laughs> is this the man who made the earth tremble? <laughs> when people are appalled at him, please imagine, the angel of beauty whose pride sought him to attempt to be above God. People being appalled by him. If Satan can keep the failures coming, then perhaps he can prevent being no More forever, as Ezekiel states, he will be. And so he tempts Jesus. And the word translated tempt means to endeavor to discover the nature or the character of something by testing, to attempt to entrap, to entice, to improper behavior. That's what the devil is attempting to do, to discover who the son is. What's his nature? What's his character? to entrap Jesus, to entice Him to sin, to make the temptations so real and so appealing to Jesus. we got to know that the temptations are real. They are not symbolic. They are real. We must also acknowledge the temptations not only were real to Satan as he offered them, but they were very real for Jesus. And so the age-old questions are these. How could Jesus really be tempted? Could Jesus really have given in to temptation? The answer has to be no. The character of our Savior, both in his identity, his divinity, and his humanity, is such that he would have never sinned, but that doesn't lessen the degree of the temptation that he experienced. It doesn't lessen in any way the fact that in this moment, He had to withstand against each temptation just because he would not have yielded. Did not mean that Jesus did not have to choose what was right or pray or fast or call on the Spirit for strength. Otherwise, it would be disingenuous to call them temptations. Can we fast forward for a moment to Matthew? We see... And what he records there, the emotional agony, the temptation produces in Jesus. An agony that we don't see here in chapter 4. The Last Supper is finished. And Jesus has left the upper room with his disciples. And then he went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter, and James, and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into, into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This does not sound like the behavior Of a man who is not deeply affected by temptation. It seems that he longs for his disciples to watch with him. It seems that he does not want to be alone. It seems that he wants the support of his friends as he faces his final temptation to not go to the cross. The temptation of Jesus must have been very real. Must have been real. Or we do not have someone who understands us. Or we do not have one who has been tempted in every way as we are tempted, but without sin. And yet that's what Scripture tells us that we have in Jesus. Because a tempted one is who we have in Jesus, then you and I can approach God's throne with grace and confidence that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Because... A tempted one is there. And that's what we need to do, right? Approach God. Receive mercy. Because a tempted one is who we have in Jesus. You and I can hold firmly to the faith we possess. And that's what we need to do, right? Keep on holding on. Keep on believing. But look, Satan doesn't want you to come near to the Savior who loves you. He does not want help for you. He does not want grace for you. He does not want you to receive mercy. He wants you to let go of your faith, to deny it, to believe that it's a fable. But guess what? Here's what he didn't see coming. He's the one who tempted Jesus, and because Jesus was really tempted, we can really approach Jesus and receive from him all these good things. Is that good news? Jesus understands the pressure to give up on identity. These temptations were real, and they made Jesus a wonderful Savior for us. And so all that to say, the temptation is no less real for you and for me. And I don't mean cutesy little temptations like, oh, I'm just going to have another piece of chocolate. I <laughs> Maybe that is a real temptation. I don't... We're talking about vital temptations and vital places of our souls. Specifically, the enemy tempts us to be insecure in or to deny our identity. Then you and I will go around doing crazy stuff, crazy stuff, trying to find some security. Crazy stuff, trying to create an identity or a name for ourselves. And most often what we do to create that identity and make that name for ourselves are not the extraordinary things that make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake and for the advancement of His kingdom and not our own. Look again in these verses. In both the first and the second temptations, Satan goes right after Jesus' identity. In verse 3, if you are the Son of God. Verse 5, if you are the Son of God. See, it's all about identity, right? Are you the Son of God? If you are the Son of God, then prove it. Or possibly, since you are the Son of God, prove it. The Greek will allow for either translation. In one case, the temptation could be to doubt who God proclaims you to be. In the other case, the temptation is to act in a way inconsistent with who your identity says you are. So the temptation lies in not embracing and living out of the identity that God has given to us. And if Satan can tempt Jesus to act outside of his identity, then he wins the contest. Then his head is not finally crushed, at least not yet. And so that's why the temptations are so real and so powerful because so much is at stake. The attack must always come at the point of identity, And when you've all rightly understood it, the enemy wants you to tempt you to doubt it. You and I, as believers in Christ, we are given lots of names in Scripture that help us know what our identity is. We are called sons and daughters of God. That might be our favorite one, right? It's heartwarming. Sons and daughters, adopted children of God. We're called brothers and sisters of Christ. We're called co heirs with Christ. Jesus said, I have called you friends. All those are names that help us know our identity. But there's another name, a broader term that's used as well. And Matthew records it in chapter 28. Before Jesus physically leaves the 11 disciples, for the very last time to to ascend to heaven, he says to them, go and make disciples of all nations. Disciples making disciples. Their job is to reproduce, and so it's a verb. They are to make disciples. So here's the thing. God will take care of making those who come to faith, sons and daughters. It's his job. God will take care of reconciling people to himself and making them co-heirs of Christ. That's his job. The apostles are to make disciples. And that's where work comes in. Sons and daughters have to be turned into disciples. And sometimes, sons and daughters of God, we are resistant to that. We prefer to remain sons and daughters and not become disciples because, let's be honest, it's easier just to be spoiled, entitled children, right? Is that not true? And if we're honest, we would have to admit that there are more than a few spoiled, entitled children in the American church, right? Because it takes commitment. And work to be a disciple. Because a disciple is one who is constantly associated with the one from whom they are learning and wanting to be like. And for you and for me, that's Jesus. When do we stop learning about him? Think about our school system here in America. At least K-4 through 12th grade. We believe it takes full-time commitment to turn out a knowledgeable adult at the end of the process. And so it takes full-time commitment to turn out a true disciple of Jesus because we never stop learning about Him. We will need eternity to fully know Him. It takes constant work to be a disciple. It takes work to make a disciple. But being a disciple is not optional. Being a disciple is not optional. Now you know what I'm going to ask next, right? Say that with me. You ready? Being a disciple is not optional. One more time with vigor. Being a disciple is not an optional. It is this word, disciple, that comes to be synonymous with Christian. They're one and the same, synonymous with Christian. Acts chapter 11, verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And who called them Christians? The people outside of the church who observed their lives and the way they lived. And what they observed, the outsiders as they looked in were people who were devoted to the Word of God and the teaching of it. They saw people who were devoted to prayer. They saw people who were devoted to fellowship with one another. They saw people who were devoted to breaking bread together. They saw people who were filled with awe. All of what? Jesus and the things of Jesus. These activities. This is what describes who a disciple is or what a disciple does. And these disciples are called Christians, Christ ones. This is our identity. And it's not optional. And so when you take up this identity, when you truly decide that you will first and foremost be a disciple of Christ, you will be tempted. To stop living and thinking and acting according to that identity and to live and think and act out of another one, one that you make for yourselves. Because if you and I stop, if we're not faithful disciples of Jesus, then we will not, not make a difference in this world for Jesus' sake. And so the goal is to get us to forget our identity. Here's the difference between Satan's tempting of Jesus and our temptation. See, Satan knows now what he did not know when he tempted Jesus. He now knows what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. He knows now that Jesus did not fail. He knows that he failed in attempting to get Jesus to fail. He knows that Jesus went to the cross And triumphed there. He knows that when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, i.e. Satan, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Is that amazing? Satan could not tempt Jesus to fall or to fail, and so he's angry because he's been made a spectacle of, and he knows his time is short, and he does not know when the final crushing will come, and so he continues to seek to cripple the kingdom, to thwart its advance, to lessen its impact. He wants God's people to deny their identity, to not be disciples, to not have a big picture of the big possibilities of a big kingdom and doing extraordinary things for God. You will be tempted to believe that it's optional and that this is an add-on to your real life. But not really your real life or your real work. You'll be tempted not to pray. You'll be tempted not to be devoted to the Word of God. You'll be tempted not to fellowship with one another. You'll be tempted not to break bread. You'll be tempted to be bored with Jesus instead of in awe of Him. Then you'll not be a disciple and you will have denied your identity. If the devil cannot defeat God, he can attempt to rob him of disciples who live by the gospel and who speak the gospel. He can continue to strike at God by holding on to people, by pulling the chains tighter. And he will use all of his power to see those people in hell with him. But here's the thing. He is not omnipotent. The power of the gospel is greater. And that's why you and I must live out of our identity in Christ to make a difference for Jesus' sake. You and I have to stand against the temptation to not be who God has declared us to be. James tells us this Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Be of good cheer. After all that, be of good cheer. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. Good news. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Good news. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Good news, right? Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. First John 4, 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Does that make you cheerful? Does that make you cheerful? Then go and live out and think out and act out of your true identity, and do extraordinary things, you, disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we can just ask once again that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us understand our identity, that you would help us embrace it, to believe that it is for us, And not for someone else. We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you that we are your greatly loved sons and daughters. But I pray that you will not allow us to be spoiled, entitled children. Who love to make the claim that we're children of the King. And enjoy all the riches and the benefits of it. And yet, Lord, do nothing to become disciples. Do not do the hard work to be and to make disciples. Not to see as our, lo- our lives as our own instead of belonging to you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us embrace our identity, that we would be true disciples, true sons, true daughters. Help us, Lord, to fight off the temptation. Thank you for the promise of your word that you provide a way for us to stand against them. Lord, the enemy wants us to doubt your love, doubt your provision, doubt your care, doubt your power, doubt, doubt, doubt. Lord, help us instead to believe, believe, believe in who you are and who you have made us to be. And Father, with your help, I pray That as we stand against the enemy, we will do extraordinary things for you and for the advancement of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.